Father, what a blessing when we open our lives up to you speaking to them, through them. What a privilege, Lord, it is that, that we who were once separated by sin, rejecting your voice now, can hear you. And to hear you plainly, hear you clearly. It's a thing that we say oh, so often, Lord, as we open these services, give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. Not just words, Lord, it's a prayer. It's a desire of our hearts that, that we would truly hear from you and, and receive from you fully all that you have for us. That we would get to know you and you would reveal to us our own hearts and where we need to grow and what we need to do. Father, what an amazing thing is if Samuel would begin to hear your voice here tonight and he would respond. He would grow in an understanding of listening to you. And so we're asking that you would teach us that truth here tonight. Help us to grow in understanding of listening to you. We ask it in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said... Amen. All right, saints, 1 Samuel chapter 3 tonight is our goal. And so here in 1 Samuel chapter 3, we're at this point where last week we looked at Samuel being given to the Lord Eli being rejected, his sons being rejected. And now we see that after one leaves, another takes their place. And keep in mind that God will always have another one to take his place. It's important to recognize that. Moses, he would be done with his ministry. And guess what? Joshua, take his place. Saul would be done as a king. David would take his place. And that would happen successively until we get to Jesus. And guess what? Nobody, nobody takes his place. And he's still on the throne. He's still ruling and reigning. And so often, what do we want to do? We want to take his place. I think I got it now, Lord. But I love the fact that here is Eli's being rejected. His sons are being rejected. Now it opens up here in 1 Samuel chapter 3, the boy Samuel. The boy. Josephus, the historian, has Samuel at right about 12 years age. 12 years of age. And so he's just, uh, you know, one who is just beginning to enter into this area of, of being a teen. He's becoming, in a sense, this man that God would make him into, but he's still a boy. He's still young. But what I love about this is although he is young, although he isn't long in the world as far as age, he has nailed it. And God chooses to speak to him and speak through him. It's something that we have seen over and over again because it says in verse 1, the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. He was there in Eli's presence, but his goal, his goal was still ministering to 
the Lord. Remember when we were back in chapter 2, verse 11, where it said, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. So we still see that he was young, ministering to the Lord. He continues, and his ministry hasn't changed here in chapter 3. He's still ministering to the Lord. I want you to know there's a difference to about ministering for the Lord. I'm going to do something for you in ministering to the Lord. There's a lot of people that can do things for God, but to minister to the Lord is something that God takes a special pleasure in. I want to share with you two passages. The first is found in in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. And this is where when Paul and Barnabas are sent out, amazingly what we see that Acts chapter 13, verse 2 makes this declaration As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The ministry was to the Lord. It wasn't just simply doing things for him, but it was a ministry to him. It was his pleasure that they sought. It wasn't just trying to do something to say, let me become active in the ministry, but let me become intimate to you. And this is huge. There's a passage that I want you to be aware of, and we kind of touched on Zadok last week as we looked at the prophecy where all of Eli's descendants would be removed from the priesthood. But there's a passage in Ezekiel, chapter 44. And if you would, just go in your Bible and turn there. He's a third of the major prophets. And so you'll have Isaiah, you'll have Jeremiah, you'll have Ezekiel. So you'll find yourself there. And in chapter 44, beginning in verse 10 of Ezekiel, God is making a statement about those who were the priests. And he's going to make a distinction about the priest. Now, you know the priest. Levi was a priest. Samuel is going to be a priest. But it makes a statement in Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 10, And the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Yet, verse 11, he says, okay, you left me. You drew people away from me, and there's a discipline that you're going to receive. Verse 11 says this, Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house, ministers of the house, and they shall slay the burnt offerings and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. You understand what's going to happen? These people have led other people, but they led them astray. So God says, you want to lead people? You will continue to lead people. But now you're going to lead them to me. But what you're going to do is this. You won't be able to minister to me, but you'll be able to minister to them. I want you to note here at the end of verse 11, it says, They shall stand before them, the 
priest shall stand before those people that they led astray, and they're going to minister to them. There's going to be a huge contrast that we're going to see in just a little bit as we get further down to this passage. But I do want you to, if you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, mark that spot. You're going to minister to them because, verse 12, they minister to them before their idols. And they caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore, I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord, that they shall bear their iniquity and they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest. You understand? You can serve the Lord and still be distant. And I love the fact that there's this huge lesson that God is trying to teach the priests. He says, you can minister to them. And I don't know how many people say, well, I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for God. Well, why don't you just draw near to God He'll draw near to you, and as you draw near to him, he's going to guide you. Just say, hold my hand and follow me, and I'll lead you into what you need to do. But so many people are saying, I'm doing this for God, I'm doing this for God. And to be honest with you, I don't know if they are. Because you can do something for the Lord and still have it be not drawing near to God. And so, so amazingly, these priests that had led people astray, he said, you can minister to them, but you cannot come near to minister to me. An incredible thing to those who think that I'm doing something for the Lord. <laughs> Why don't you do minister to the Lord, not for the Lord? Draw near to him. As we looked at last Sunday, seek to give him greater glory. But he does make that statement in verse 13, they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place, but they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keepers, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. Here's people ministering for the Lord, ministering for the Lord, but you know what? They're never coming near an intimacy. And now in verse 15 and 16, this is where it just so beautifully shifts. He said, but the priests, the Levites, the son of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge." So beautiful. You have one priest that are going to not draw near, but they'll minister to the people, and the one is going to come near, and they're going to minister to the Lord. The difference is this. In verse 23, speaking of these sons of Zadok, it says this, they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy, and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. 
When you draw near to God, you understand his heart. When you simply do things for God, you have no idea. And there are a lot of people who have done things in the name of God and for the work of God who have been absolutely in error of the heart of God. And I think it's important that if you want to serve the Lord, let me give you some advice. Do what Samuel did, minister to the Lord. Just draw near to him. Draw near to him, honor him, glorify him, minister to the Lord. And we see that what? He does minister to the Lord before Eli. And it goes on in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 3 saying, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no widespread revelation. God was not speaking to men. Now, every so often, God would speak, as we noted last week, there in, in chapter 2, verse 27, there was a man of God came to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I not reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt? And, and so he, he uses a man to speak to Eli the sins of Eli and the sins of his son. Amazingly, nothing changed. And so what God is going to do is he's going to speak to Eli a second time the same truth. And in this time he speaks to Eli, he is going to say something that is going to be absolutely devastating. In verse 14 of chapter 3, God is going to, through Samuel, say this to Eli, and therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now, I don't know if he had a chance to atone or to repent or to do something there in chapter 2. Nothing happened. Nothing changed of his heart, nothing changed of his ways. They continued to be, one, cautioned by God and then not change a thing. This passage should be an eye-opener to anyone that God has spoken to and said, listen, I need to caution you, turn from the path that you're on. Turn from these things that I've called you to repent of and to confess and to cast them aside. You need to change. You need to draw near to me. And after that man of God came, we see no changes at all. No, no desire to repent, no desire to change and, and so we see that the word of God wasn't widespread. There wasn't a lot of people who understand, here's the will of God. This is the heart of God. They've been rejecting it. And when God does speak forth his word, as he did there in chapter 2, all of a sudden what? There's no change. What good was the word of God? Well, I want you to see that the word of God speaking to Samuel is going to be amazing. 
Samuel is going to hear from the Lord. Samuel is going to begin to serve the Lord. And what we see is Samuel here is going to truly grow in his hearing and walking with God. In other words, he's going to grow in his ministering to the Lord. It says here in verse 2, It came to pass at that time that while Eli was lying down in his place, and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here I am. Verse 5 says, So he, Samuel, ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call, lie down again. And he went and lay down. Then the Lord, verse 6, called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli. And he said, Here I am, for you called me. And he answered, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Verse 7 makes this statement, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Verse 8, and the Lord called Samuel again, the third time. So he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lay down. And it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Verse 10, Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Samuel is growing. Samuel, at this point, it says in verse 2 that it came to pass while he was lying down in his place. And when his eyes began to grow so dim that he could not see before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of the God was and while Samuel was lying down. We understand that it talks about one Eli, Samuel, it's at night, they're lying down. And Eli, his eyes had begun to grow dim. Now, we've already noted that, you know, according to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 15, it, it, it made that statement where we see that how old this guy really was. It says in, in chapter 4, verse 15, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. So understanding that when Samuel hears his name, he's thinking, Eli needs something. He can't see, he can't get around. What does he need? Let me help him out. And this is his heart. His heart is to serve. Now, as he does, we see that here 
Eli is just an, an old man at this point. And it says in verse 3, before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle. Two thoughts on this. One is that happens spiritually. Did the lamp of God go out spiritually um, as Eli is leaving? There's a possibility. But there's a couple of verses I want you to be aware of when it comes to this lamp of God and, and how that plays out for the question that comes in verse 3. Does the lamp of God go out in the tabernacle? A couple of passages I want you to be aware of. The first is found in Exodus chapter 27. I want to read to you two verses. Now, what I'm going to try to do is establish just a point in Scripture that makes this declaration. That the menorah, many scholars believe, and I would tend to agree with them. There's two camps. One is the menorah would never go out. It would be lit 24-7, always, you know, the, the priests go in and fix it. The other school of thought is that the menorah was lit in the evening so that it would be a light during the night and it wasn't lit during the day. So this is what we're going to look at here within these passages. When it comes to the understanding of the lampstand, when the Lord gives to Moses the understanding of how the lampstand is to be built in chapter 25, he says nothing about the length of time or how it's used, just how it's built. But in chapter 27, verses 20 and 21, I'm going to take you to the three portions in Scripture where it actually talks about the menorah and its lighting and how it's done. So in verse 20 and 21 of Exodus 27, it says, And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony of Aaron, Well, which is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it. Now notice this, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever for all their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. Something to, to be aware of is the, the, this word, tamid in the, the, the Hebrew can mean continual, it can mean perpetual, but it can also, and it has been used in many cases as regularly or daily. And so when you see this word and it says that it needs to be burning continually, that word to mid can be, it needs to, you know, tend, you cause it to burn daily or cause it to burn regularly. So because of this term translated in the English continually, we have this mindset, it should be 24-7. Yet in verse 27, it says, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. 
that is going to be a statute forever, for the generations. And so we recognize that that is one aspect of this menorah, this lampstand. In Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, same type of thing is happening. He makes a statement, Exodus 30, verse 7, and he says, Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense. Speaking of that table of incense. Aaron shall burn on it the table of incense, sweet incense, every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. So when he tends to the lamps in the morning... He's going to burn incense on the incense offering. Verse 8 says, And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Now we see that term perpetual again, but it means what? You're not constantly burning incense, but it's a regular, it's a daily thing that you burn incense on it. So the same word is used in both instances. So I want you to understand that he says you're going to put incense on the incense offering in the morning when he tends to the lamps and also in the evening when he lights the lamps. So there seems to be this understanding within that lampstand that the lamp is lit at twilight, it burns until morning, and at morning you extinguish it, you put in the new wicks, you put in the new oil, you make everything ready for evening to when you light it again. In Leviticus chapter 24, the first four verses makes this declaration. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. That term, continually, perpetually, can also mean regularly, daily. But it says this, to make the lamps burn continually outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. And it shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall bring, he shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstands before the Lord continually. And so now we see that term continually. But it does go on in verse 3 to say Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning. Do you understand? That the menorah in these passages have that context that it's lit at night, not during the day. That during the day, they'll have the curtains and the light can come in through the curtains. That's what they'll do to minister. But the lighting happens at night. The light is to what? To overcome darkness. That's why Jesus came into the world. He came not to be a light in the light. He came to be what? A light in the darkness. Now, understand that Jesus' light is so incredible that what? He can approach Saul of Tarsus, who later on becomes Paul, 
as he goes to Damascus and he can approach him at noon and that light is so light that it blinds him. That's the light of Christ. That, that's how his light is. But I want you to recognize that when we come here to chapter 3 of 1 Samuel 3, it has that directive to say, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle, in other words, it's before morning. That's all really he's saying. It happened at night while they were sleeping before morning came. So it's important to recognize that this is happening at night. And of course, we understand Eli's lying down. Samuel's lying down. Now, of course, Eli's an old guy. He could be lying down and taking a nap sometime in the afternoon. That, that's a possibility. But the context here is what? It's at night. He's sleeping. Samuel is sleeping. And Samuel, while he was lying down, amazingly that there... Verse 3 says, before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle, in other words, at night before the morning of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, here I am. Here I am, powerful statement. When you say, here I am, you're, you're literally, you know, recognize and say, okay, God, I, I got you here, I understand you have a plan, I want to be part of this plan. You have a need, I want to fulfill that need. But what happens is this, when Samuel says, here I am, he doesn't know it's the Lord. He's willing to assist Eli. He's willing to just wake up and help a man. And if we're willing, like Samuel, to, to help a person, how much more so when God calls your name? At this point, I want you to see here the heart of this young boy because when, when he thinks it's Eli, he answers, here I am. Here I am. Now, amazingly, this is not the first time that those words are spoken in Scripture. When Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, in Genesis 22, so amazingly, it says this in the first verse. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, so amazing. God's going to run a test. And he speaks his name, Abraham. And he, Abraham, said, here I am. Here I am. I'm part of your plan, Lord. I'm part of whatever that you have. I'm, I'm in submission to you. And then God then says to Abraham in verse 2, he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the testimony of the mount that I shall tell you. Absolutely amazing that Abraham surrenders to the authority of God when God calls his name. When God says, I want to use you. Abraham says, here I am. That is a term of surrender. That's a term of opening yourselves up to the, the, the will of God. And it says, listen, God, you have to guide me. You have to lead me. But whatever you say, I'm your guy. And then in Exodus chapter 3, 
eventually what's going to happen is this. That Moses is going to see this burning bush and eventually he turns to go see that bush a little closer. And in verse 4 of Exodus 3, we see here when the Lord saw that he, Moses, had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, calls his name twice. And Moses said, here I am. Absolutely amazing. And God would call him into being his servant. God would call him into going to his people. And absolutely amazing to see that these are the points where God will call someone. And when he calls someone, what happens? You, you do what God calls you to do. Eventually, when we come to the conversion of Paul, the apostle, when he is still Saul, in that passage of Acts chapter 9, scroll down a little further to verse 10. And at this point, it says this, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, Ananias said, here I am. Now amazingly is God tells him, I said, I want you to go, I want you to lay hands, and I want you to pray for this guy, Saul, he's praying now. Well, it's amazing because at this point, Ananias in verse 13 says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he, here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. Do you understand? He goes, Ananias, I want you to go arise and inquire for Saul. And, and he's... He sees you coming, putting hands on him. I need, and, he, and I'm like, Lord, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. But what happens is when God says go, what does Ananias do? He goes. He questions it. He understands it. He doesn't fully grasp it, but he goes. And I think it's important that, that when God calls your name, it's important it's important to know that it's God. Because I'll be honest, there's a lot of other people that will call your name. There's a lot of other things that are vying for your attention. And there's a lot of false prophets out there that are saying, God says you can sin and still have the blessing. God says you can sin and it's still going to be okay. And it's one of those things we'll remember now in Acts chapter 9 when God calls Saul in verse 4. He fell to the ground when he sees the light. He heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And amazingly, Saul doesn't say, here I am. He goes, who are you? Who are you? Here's someone that God calls. He doesn't even know the Lord. He has no clue to who the Lord is. I think it's important 
that when the voice of the Lord comes, when God begins to speak forth his beautiful truths, that we become those people who hear from the Lord. And it's important that we begin to grasp and hear from the Lord because there's so many others that do not speak forth the heart of God. They're constantly trying to get people to listen to everything else except God. There's a passage. I want to just share it with you. You don't have to turn there, but maybe just jot it down. Because in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 16 and 17, he makes this statement. Thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you and make you worthless They speak visions of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. They continually say to those who despise me, the Lord has said you shall have peace. And everyone who walks according to the dictates of their own heart, they say no evil shall come upon you. See, keep in mind that there are going to be a lot of times that you're going to want to hear. You're going to want to hear, I want to know, what is God's heart? What does he say? What does he say? And there's a lot of people who will come to me and say, Pastor Lowe, can you pray for me? I want to hear from the Lord. And eventually, as I take that time and I pray and God gives me a word for them, sometimes they say, ah, thanks, but not interested. I'm going to ask somebody else because I don't like what you have to say. I don't want to hear that. And they'll go to someone else, and they'll go to someone else, and they'll go to someone else. Keep in mind, they do not want to hear from the Lord. They'll hear any voice. And I want you to recognize that at this point, Samuel doesn't fully understand the voice of God. And and that's going to happen to us when we're new in the Lord. And keep in mind, verse 7 says what? Samuel did not yet know the Lord. He's still, he's a baby. He's he's learning, he's ministering. Now, at this point, he's going to come what? He's going to come to his conversion. It's so amazing that when he hears the voice, what he does, he goes to Eli. First, he says, here I am. He runs to Eli, says, here I am. You called me. He says, no, I didn't call you. Lie down again. And he went and laid down again. The Lord called. Samuel. Samuel rose, went to Eli. He's constantly thinking, Eli's calling me, but Eli says, I'm not calling you. Go lay down. Verse 8, a third time, the Lord calls Samuel. He arose, went to Eli, for here I am. And now Eli says, wait a second, I know what's going on. It's amazing. I don't know if Eli has ever heard the voice of God, but amazingly, he's hears from God to help Samuel out. And he makes a statement and understand the enormity of what he's about to say. When he realizes that it's the Lord who calls him, verse 9 is huge. Eli said to Samuel, go lie down and it shall be if he calls you. Now, don't be presumptive. He's not don't, don't say, oh, you're, you're going to talk to me, Lord. I'm that important where I know. No, he says, if, if he calls you, that you must say, and notice, he doesn't say, tell them, here I am. He doesn't do that. He says, you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Speak, Lord, authority, God, you speak, 
and he calls him capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the YHVH, Jehovah, Yahweh. We begin to see to speak, Lord, for your servant. Now you become submissive to the Lordship. You become submissive to his authority and say this, your servant hears. Not just listens, but hears. He hears. And I think it's so important to recognize that, that there are times where maybe you, you've heard someone say, you're just not listening to me. And sometimes that means you're, you're not you know, paying attention to what I'm trying to say. You're not, you're, not, you're not really giving me the time of day. You're not listening to me. And when a parent says to a child, you're not listening to me, so what? you're not being obedient. It's not that you're not just paying attention. You're not being obedient to me. You're not listening. And I think it's important that when we, when we really listen to God, when we say, I hear you, you're, 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 you're focused on him, you're paying attention to him, and you're going to be obedient to the things that he says. At this point, it's an absolute incredible statement that Eli directs Samuel to say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's what you've got to say. Don't, don't say, here I am. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so what happens? Samuel went and he laid down in his place at the end of verse 9. And then, then, once he has that understanding, not just the voice, but we see now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. And now he doesn't just say Samuel, but now he comes, he stands, and he goes, Samuel, Samuel. Twice he says his name. Now I do want to read to you, I, I want to go all the way down to verse 15, because it's important for you to recognize what's happening here, because it makes this statement. When in verse 10, the Lord came and stood and called at other times and said, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel answered, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do something in Israel, which both ears of everyone who hears it would tingle. And in that day, I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And Samuel, verse 15, lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Now, this is what's important. Is it a vision or did the Lord, according to verse um, 10, came and stood by him and spoke? Keep in mind that I, I agree with the scholars on this as they do believe the Lord actually stands before Samuel. And when the Lord speaks in verses 12 through 14, 
what he's going to perform against Eli. That is the vision. That's saying something that has a further understanding. So keep in mind that when you see that he would not tell Eli the vision, the vision isn't just God appeared to me in a dream and I saw him. No, the Lord actually stood and spoke And as he sees these things, he's literally in Samuel's presence, literally speaking to Samuel. And and that word that he gives is the vision that Samuel is afraid to tell Eli, not the fact that he saw God. And so keep in mind that there are some people who say, no, the Lord really didn't show up because in verse 15 it says it was a vision, and I disagree with that. The vision is the the statement that he makes in verses 12 through 14. So back in verse 10, when the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. Now he physically shows up, Samuel, Samuel. And then, of course, he says, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. It's a beautiful thing. Remember, we were going through the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 3. He said, to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. It's a beautiful thing that he knows the name of his sheep. That is the Lord. That's how he moves. In verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. He knows his sheep. He's able to say, Samuel, Samuel. He's able to say Abraham. He's able to say Moses. Do you understand? It's a beautiful thing that he's able to say Ananias, but he's also able to say what? Saul, Saul. He's not yet Paul, but guess what? God knows he's a sheep. He knows he's a sheep. It's a beautiful thing to see what happens when God speaks your name. That he understands your character. He understands who you are. And God so knows Samuel that he's already called him once. Said, Samuel. He called him a second time, Samuel. Called him a third time, Samuel. And now he goes, Samuel, Samuel. I love the fact that God in this passage loves to say his name. And of course, we recognize that what he does, he says his name five times, the number of grace. Absolutely incredible to me. The fourth time he says it twice, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel says exactly, exactly what Eli told him to say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I'm, I'm listening, I'm paying attention I'm a vessel. Do what you have to do. Guide me. Instruct me. Show me what is your heart. Speak to me. I'm hearing. I'm paying attention. And the Lord said, Behold, I will do something in Israel with both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This passage, this phrase, when it comes to the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, actually has that connotation of calamity. When God says the ears of everyone is going to tingle, he's speaking of, in a sense, calamity. Let me give you two verses to jot down. You don't have to turn there, just so you can understand these contexts. In 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 12, 
he makes this statement, therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such a calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. Again, he says in Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 3, same principle, and say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring such catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. So that term tingle means calamity, means catastrophe. And God is about to what? Speak forth the calamity and a catastrophe upon Eli. And, and it's not just discipline, it's not just a punishment, but what he says is this. Verse 12, in that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And in other words, take that context of chapter 2, verses 27 through 36. I'm not going to read it. We went through it last week. You can read through it again after service or tonight or tomorrow if you want. But understand, all that that man of God said to Eli as far as the, the that, listen, everyone in your house is going to be wiped out. There's going to be none ever to sit and minister to me. God says this, I will perform, verse 12 of chapter 3, against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons have made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. That that is where his sons just basically sin. They would abhor the offering of the Lord. It made a statement there in verse 17 of chapter 2. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. He would go on in verse 22. It says, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. That their sons that would go on to the priesthood were illegitimate. Absolutely incredible that this is where they would be. And God is saying, listen, I'm going to judge them because one, their sin, and two, your sin to not restrain them. Yes, you are the father, but you're also the priest. You're their boss in this situation. And as that, you need to direct them. And he did not restrain them. And verse 14 is this huge powerful statement against Eli, against his house. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be attained for by the sacrifice or by offering forever. In other words, I'm going to judge your house. Your house will be judged. And so there is an atonement for them. Why? They've rejected, they've rejected, they've rejected. They rejected where, where God had in the earlier chapter, chapter 2 said, listen, this is what's going on. He failed to change. He was aware of it, but he didn't come to repentance. He didn't come to a change. And 
keep in mind that the scripture does warn us that there is a point where if you are receiving a word from the Lord and you don't accept God's direction, there isn't another plan. You are just doomed. There's a passage. Let me read it to you. Hebrews 10, 26. He said, For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. When you reject the path that God has for you, you can't make your own. There's a path that God has, and that's the only path. Now, keep in mind that there are two aspects that you should be aware of, and I want to bring you some clarity simply because I did quote that passage of you know, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Peter writes in the second epistle, two portions of scripture, and I think it's important to recognize what Peter does. In second Peter chapter one, verse four, he says, by which has been given to exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So you can escape the corruption. That's coming to Jesus Christ and having your sins forgiven. That's corruption. You escape the corruption. He will not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Same thing with us. He's going to make sure that we do not see corruption. We've escaped the corruption. However, Peter will go on in that epistle, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, makes a statement that while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slave to corruption. Do you understand? They're still in their sins. They, 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 they talk to people and say, yo, you're going to have liberty, you're going to have liberty, but I'm still in my sins. I'm still a slave of corruption for by whom a person is overcome by him also is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, do you understand? I've, I've let go of sin, but I haven't come to Christ. See, you, you can escape corruption and you can escape pollution. You escape corruption, and that's where Peter says, listen, you have escaped the corruption. You are, are partakers of the promise. You've accepted Jesus Christ. Now, these other ones are still slave to corruption, but they have escaped the pollution. I'm not doing the things that I used to do. I'm not, I'm not drinking like I used to drink. I'm not swearing like I used to swear. My life is changing, but I haven't accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I've escaped the pollution through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm looking to the word and I'm seeing there's truth here and I'm, I'm walking towards it, but I haven't accepted Jesus Christ yet. And then he says this, and the latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better to them not to known the way of righteousness than have known to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. At this point, they think, well, I, I think I'm good because I'm, I'm changing my life. But it's not about changing your life. It's about what? Accepting his gift. It's about coming into a right relationship. Say, Jesus Christ, speak for your servant hears. I'm now yours. 
I'm your servant. I'm your child. You speak, I'll listen. That's escaping the corruption, accepting Jesus Christ. Not simply saying, oh, the word says this, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. You can change a lot in your life by applying the word of God. But if you do not surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, he is the only thing that allows us to escape the corruption. You can escape pollution and still be in bondage to corruption, still be in bondage to your sin, although what? Although I'm not sinning like I used to. But I'm still not drawing near to God. I'm still not glorifying Him. But this is what happens. It's so important to recognize in verse 14, he says, I've sworn to the house of Eli, here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 14, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be attained for, atoned for by sacrifice or by offering. I am going to judge you, and you will not, nor will any of your descendants be able to stop the judgment. And that's, of course, where we went through that the lineage of Eli showing that all of his, his priests, all the way to Abiathar, are rejected and no longer serving as priests. Well, after he hears, verse 15 says, so Samuel lay down until morning. Doesn't say he slept. <laughs> I can imagine. He's laying down, but he's not sleeping. But amazingly, this is what happens. He, he lays down until morning, and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. I don't want you to mistake how this simple phrase is much larger than what you may think. Samuel is hearing from the Lord. Samuel receives this vision of God, of, of what's going to happen with Eli. And what he does is this. He does what he always done. He doesn't change. Look at verse 15. Samuel laid down and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. It was his job to open the doors of the house. And what did he do? He keeps opening the house. He doesn't change just because now God is using him. See, sometimes we think, well, I'm beyond that job now. I shouldn't be doing that job now. I'm so far beyond that job. Remember, and this is so huge, that in 1 Samuel, we'll get there in a few weeks, a few months, this year. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we, we actually recognize that what happens is this. Verse 1 says this, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. I've got a king of the sons of Jesse. In verse 13, Samuel took the horn and anointed him, which is the youngest, verse 11, who was keeping the sheep. Remember? And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Because God says, we have rejected them. I don't want them. I've not chosen them. And he goes, well, there still remains the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said, bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. David, before he's a king, is tending the sheep. And now in verse 13, he took the horn of oil, anointed him David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward, and Samuel arose and went to Ramah. David is now anointed the king of Israel. 
So what do we see? Well, verse 19 of 1 Samuel 16. Therefore Saul sent the messenger to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. Do you understand? He's now the anointed king of Israel. And what's he doing? Same thing he's always done. Still watching the sheep. Still looking after the sheep. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 15, it makes this statement. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. <laughs> he, he still goes back. and if he, He's the anointed king. And guess what his job is as a king? I'm still feeding my father's sheep. It hasn't changed yet. Amazingly, in verse 20, it said this. When David comes to his brothers through his dad's command to help them, so David arose early in the morning in 1 Samuel 17, left the sheep with the keeper and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the camp where the army was. Amazingly, here's David. He's still doing what he's doing. Don't think that because God calls you and uses you that now you're too good for other things. It's an important thing. I think servants are servants. And you can hear the voice of God and speak forth the voice of God, but it doesn't mean that what? You don't open doors. It doesn't mean that you should still want to be what? A doorkeeper in the house of the Lord to just welcome people into the Lord's house. Just something as simple as opening a door. Do you understand how powerful of, of, a, of a statement this is to Samuel and his character? He's not like, oh, I'm too good to open the doors now because now God speaks to me. No, he still does that. And so as he goes and he opens the door, Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. I, I, I love the fact that he's not like Jonah that can't wait to tell people that they're doomed. That's Jonah. Boy, 40 days and you guys are toast. That's not Samuel. He doesn't have a heart to condemn. But what we do see is this. Eli called Samuel. And he said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, as he's been, here I am. And he said, what is the word that the Lord has spoke to you? Please do not hide from me. God, do so do to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. And so Samuel, very obediently, told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. He's resigned. He's like, God is true, and, and, and I will accept this judgment that is here. And then comes verse 19. So Samuel grew. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel heard from the Lord. And Samuel would not speak forth a word unless he heard it from the Lord. And when he heard from the Lord, he spoke it clearly. He spoke it powerfully. He, he said, Saul, God has rejected you from being king. He goes and he tells Jesse, where's your youngest? God has not chosen these. You understand he's not succumbing to pressure. He's simply doing what God has called him to do. And even when... The children of Israel say, we want a king. Samuel says, Lord, this is wrong. And God said, give him a king because they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Do you understand? He does what God calls him to do. 
Samuel grew, verse 19, the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Now, when it says from Dan to Beersheba, keep in mind, Dan is at the top north of Israel. Beersheba is at the south, the bottom of Israel. In other words, from north to south. It's, it's like saying from, from Boston to Los Angeles, from coast to coast. You, you, when you say coast to coast, what? You mean everything in the middle. So from Dan to Beersheba, from the very northern point of Israel, all the way to the southern point of Israel, Samuel was established. The term also means he was confirmed. People knew that he was a prophet of the Lord. Not a judge, not a priest at this point, but a prophet that he would speak forth. Samuel begins another ministry. The judges are done. The prophets are beginning. And so he's the first of the prophets. And they all knew that he was the prophet of the Lord. And then, verse 21, the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So God continues to speak through Samuel where he's at. And I love the fact that, that as, as, as Samuel begins to hear the word, he speaks forth the word. And Samuel recognizes, one, it's important. It's important. Go back, if you would, to that last time that he hears from him. And, and when he says, Samuel, Samuel, verse 10, Samuel answered, speak for your servant hears. Speak. I hear you. And I think it's so important to, to recognize that truth that, that we can be those who hear from God. That we can be those who hear from. But I think that the first thing before, if you're not hearing from God, it might be that you're not ministering to God. You might be ministering for him and trying to say, why aren't I hearing? What's going on? What's going on? But you're not ministering to him. I think there's a pattern and the pattern is so powerful that when you begin to minister to the Lord, then the Lord speaks to you and through you to say, now you are going to be able to, like this, the sons of Zadok, to be able to tell the people Here's the heart of God. Here's holy and here's unholy. Here's clean. Here's not clean. Because you are experiencing me. You're experiencing holy. You're experiencing purity. That's ministering to the Lord. And if you're wondering, why aren't I hearing from God? It might be that you're not in that place of, of wanting to say, okay, Lord, I want to just draw near to you. And as I draw near to you, there's going to be holiness that is being transformed in my life. There's going to be purity. I'm going to know the difference between clean and unclean. I'm not just going to say, speak and I'm going to do what I want. I'm drawing near to you and surrender. I'm drawing near to you for guidance and, and direction, Lord. When you come to that place, minister to the Lord then I think that you're going to be able to hear from the Lord. And when you do, make sure that you humble yourself. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. I'm paying attention, and I want to be obedient. May that be our hearts. Amen.
Well, Father, we are so grateful for just this passage, this word, who you are and how you speak to us, Lord. There are so many subtleties within this chapter, Lord, so many subtleties that if we just read it quickly and, and, and peruse it fast, that, that we miss so much of what you want to speak to us. Teach us, Lord, to minister to you. Speak, teach us to draw near to you and then to hear from you, to hear, to know, the, the, to know your heart and that, that when we know your heart, that we won't reject that heart. Father, there's a lot of people, a lot of people who tell us that you can sin and still have peace with God. Those are false prophets. They haven't heard from you. You haven't spoken through them. But yet people want to listen. People want to hear them. People want to say, this is the Lord. I can sin and still be good. And yet that's not your heart. You would judge Eli. You would give him a chance to repent, but he wouldn't. You would give him a chance to turn, but he wouldn't. And then you would judge him and say, there's no longer, there's no longer an atonement. There's no longer going to be where I will back off from this promise of destruction of your family line in serving me. Lord, powerful words, heavy words, but beautiful words. It's heavy when we are in that place of Eli and his sons and not listening and sinning and thinking we're okay. But it's beautiful we're in that place of Samuel and we're surrendered to you and drawing near to you. Give us the heart of Samuel, we ask in Jesus' name. And all God's saints said, amen.